Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. We're going to tell you the story of Mary Lee Orsini. So grab your mimosas and settle in. We've heard the saying, oh, what a tangled web you weave when we first practice to deceive. This you will find will be very fitting claim to Mary Lee Orsini's life. Lee, as as she wanted to go by later, grew up in Jacksonville, Arkansas, by the Little Rock Air Force Base. The family owned over 600 acres, but her father died when she was young, leaving his wife to raise Lee and her younger brother, Ron. The family would sell off the land bit by bit in order to survive. Mary dropped out of school at 16 and married a man in the Air Force that was 21 in December of 1963. The two were stationed in California. The couple divorced and then they remarried again in 1966. It was then that they had a daughter named Tiffany. However, the couple divorced again in 67. After the divorce, Lee moved back to Arkansas to be with her mother and her brother. According to Ron, there was never any love lost between the two of them. The two of them fought all the time. When she moved back, Ron was working for a bank. Ron was called into the bank president's office, and she advised him that she received a call that day from a woman who informed her that she was out with him Saturday night and he was doing drugs, and she refused them, but wanted her to know what kind of person worked at this bank. Ron immediately suspected Lee, and he said as much. The lady called back later, and the president let him hear her voice, and he confirmed it was his sister, Lee. Lee would go on to marry and divorce another man and eventually marry a a man named Ron Orsini in 1976. Lee was 29 at the time, and Ron was 34. Ron was 25% owner in a heating and air company. Ron was a sweet-natured, quiet man. The couple bought a house together, but Lee had a passion to live beyond her means. Lee insisted on a bigger home, which her husband obliged. The larger home required more furniture, which Lee got on credit. Oh, and they had not yet sold their other home, but guess how they got the money for this house? Lee talked her mother into putting her house up as collateral. While Lee is living way above her means, their house payment was delinquent and soon to be foreclosed on. March 11, 1981, Ron went to bed in the master bedroom. Lee went to bed with her daughter, who was ill. The following day, Lee woke up to find Ron shot in the head and dead from a gunshot wound to the head. So what, did she and her daughter just sleep through this? Now this is what she claims. Apparently, nothing was stolen, and she and her daughter were asleep in the next room. 
<clears throat> right next door, and there was just a wall and a closet in between. That day, Ron Hatcher, Lee's brother, gets a call from T.J. Farley at the North Little Rock Police Department. He asked Ron if he knew his brother-in-law was killed last night. Ron asked which brother, brother-in-law, because, well, I mean, there's been a few. He tells him about Ron Orsini. He asked how he, how he was killed, and he told him he was shot in the bed. And Ron's sister is accusing him of killing him. This accusation apparently went nowhere with the police. Police were investigating and concerned that Lee and Tiffany didn't hear anything. There was no forced entry. Nothing was taken, and he was killed by a 38 caliber pistol, which Ron reported one stolen out of his truck in January. Police searched all over, but were never able to locate the murder weapon. They see the condition of their finances, and Ron had $75,000 in life insurance, and the house would be paid off in the event of his death. The house was paid off, but at least how at least mother's house was foreclosed on. So did her mother come to live with her or did she help with housing? No, her mother was on her own. So that morning, Tom Glaze, a court of appeals judge called Bill MacArthur, he tells him he knows this lady and the police are questioning her. He asks, can you run by and just make sure she's advised of her rights? I mean, this would be the worst decision Bill ever makes, but he doesn't know it at the time. Bill was a well-known defense attorney in Little Rock. He had made a name for himself in this field and was highly regarded. He and another attorney had opened a law practice together. Life was going well for Bill. He was happily married. He had two kids, a beautiful home in Pleasant Valley. His wife was a stay-at-home mom that loved to play tennis while the kids were at school. The well-to-do family of the 80s, completely off topic, but I play tennis and all I can see was the white tennis skirt, a polo shirt, and a sweater tied around her neck since it was the 80s. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just had to give you a visual. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nice visual. I can, I, can, I can see it. Okay. So Bill goes to the North Little Rock Police Department and checks on her. She says she has nothing to do with her husband's death. They don't charge her and they let her go. MacArthur does see her in court about a week later, though. He was trying a case in circuit court and he sees Lee sitting in the back of the courthouse with a man who has his arm around her, which probably seems peculiar since her husband had just been murdered. Mm. So when court was adjourned, Lee finds Bill and introduces Bill to her boyfriend, Dr. Charles Waltz, a veterinarian. Yeah, that's not suspicious at all. Right. It's been a week, and I found time to bury my husband, find a boyfriend. I mean, all this. And it takes me a week just to get the clothes out of the dryer. So Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> Lee ends up going to Bill's office and playing him or paying him a retainer because he knows the police are looking at her or because she knows the police are looking at her as a suspect for her husband's murder. And she was right. The NLRPD asked the prosecuting attorney to seek a grand jury investigation. Danica, do you want to explain the purpose of a grand jury? For the off chance of our listeners, listeners, I can't talk. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> okay. So a grand jury listens to the prosecutor and the witnesses 
decides in secret if enough evidence exists to charge a person with a crime. Only the jurors, a prosecutor, and a court reporter are allowed to be present. Bill hires a private investigator, which was Jim Lester. He was an Arkansas State Police investigator on medical leave. Jim is trying to find out what he can that may be used to show up as proof to the grand jury. He also interviews Lee several times as well. He reports back to Bill and tells him she's guilty. Bill wants to know what he found out to make him say that. Jim said he can't find anything on her, but he knows she's guilty and she's evil. The mysterious death of Ron Orsini kept the media busy. Lee seemed to love the attention in the media. She isn't shy about telling them of her dissatisfaction with the way the NLRPD are investigating the case. In June, she tells the news that she found a man in her home removing bags containing a white substance from a secret compartment in the bottom of a bookshelf in her den. She held him at gunpoint while reaching for the phone to call the police. He lunged at her and her gun went off and he was able to get away. Lee ends up not being indicted by the grand jury and has a champagne party at her house that Bill was invited to. To his surprise, when he arrived, her boyfriend and the media had been invited. She calls the office pretty much daily and was greeted by Bill's secretary, Phoebe Jones. The two women end up building a friendship after Lee calls, calls the day after the party and informs Phoebe she thinks Bill is mad at her. Phoebe informed her that the media doesn't need to see her with a man right now. It doesn't look good. And yes, he was upset about it. The two women talk daily and out of the office as well. The MacArthur's are also enjoying the time with their friends. The 80s brought about many things. With it was honky-tonks and lawn dancings. The MacArthur's and their friends loved to frequent frequent country club cowboy disco owned by Bob Trout. This caused Bill and James Nelson to talk about opening a nightclub of their own, which they did with a big name DJ in Arkansas named Bob Robbins owning 20%. BJ star studded honky tonk. I'm actually old enough to remember going there. It was always packed and so much fun back in the day. This wasn't great news for everyone because this ran Bob Trout out of business. Before he was ran out of business on April 7th, Bob Robbins was beaten badly with a bat, with a baseball bat once he left the radio station and Bob Trout was charged with the assault. The day after the beating, or the day after the beating, Lee races to Bill's office because her window had been shot out of her car. Of course, she passes the police and drives to his office to tell him. She announces to the news she will no longer have anyone looking into her husband's death because she doesn't want to die, too. I told you she liked the media. I'm curious as to why she didn't go to the police as soon as someone shot at her rather than her attorney. A lot she does makes me wonder, and it doesn't make sense. On the morning of May 21st, Alice went to her car to get in a little tennis that day when suddenly a bomb exploded. Well, partially exploded. The bomb didn't do a ton of damage to the car or to Alice, 
just some scrapes on her leg. The bomb only partially detonated. Had it exploded like it was supposed to, the car would have been in pieces along with Alice. She was, of course, terrified. I'm sure she called the, I'm sure. So she called the police and she called her husband who ran home. The police asked Alice who she thought would do this. And she said, Bob Trout. She didn't even hesitate. Just the day before, he had been arrested for arranging to have three businesses burn, and one of them was BJ's. Bill didn't agree with that. He said he wouldn't be that he wouldn't be dumb enough to just do that after just being arrested. People would automatically assume it was him. June went by without without issue, and the MacArthur's took the kids to summer camp. The two of them were planning a weekend away at the lake for the 4th of July weekend. Bill had been busy with the trial and Lee had been calling all week trying to get an appointment. It was Friday, July 2nd, and Bill wanted to get out of the office early to get a few things done before they left for the weekend. Phoebe asked if he could see Lee at 4.30. He agreed, but said he wanted everybody in and out as quickly as possible so he could leave. Bill got home around 5.10. He found their dog in the driveway, which which was unusual, but he brought her in. He yelled for Alice to let her know he was home. He could hear the TV on in the the den downstairs, and he decided she was probably just taking a nap. He went to the bedroom, emptied his pockets, and went downstairs to find Alice. The TV was on, but she wasn't in the den. However, her cigarettes and lighter were there as well as her car. He began to get worried, thinking maybe she'd been kidnapped. I know for a lot of us, that isn't our first thought, but after being bombed, I can see how you could draw that conclusion. He called the police, and then he called the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office because they had agreed to keep an eye on the house after the bombing. He called a neighbor, Anita Prather, after that to see if Alice had walked down there to her house, but of course, she hadn't. Oddly enough, most people that smoke usually don't walk off without their cigarettes. So True. And growing up during this time, it was probably in one of those little cigarette cases. Women carried them around like we carry our cell phones now. They were everywhere. So the police arrived and they asked Bill if he checked the house well. Of course, he says he did. His neighbor, Anita, began to check the house again, too. She walks in the bedroom and she sees the clothes laying on the bed for the trip. She looks around and she sees Alice in the closet, dead. Since Bill called both the LRPD as well as the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office, both are trying to investigate, even though LRPD has jurisdiction. Not to mention the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office and Bill aren't besties or anything. This would be Toby Robinson. We did a podcast with some of his antics a while back, so I won't go over all of them, but he may be more of a media whore than Lee. He said they weren't besties, but did something happen to cause this or just politics and life? Tommy had actually fired some deputies and they hired Bill, who got them their jobs back. So Tommy had a little bit of ill feelings toward Bill. Back to the turf war, this was an ongoing thing since the bombing. Tommy had told the media he was not sharing information about the bomb with anyone other than the FBI and the prosecuting attorney. 
He also advised them he was investigating Trout and and the Orsini murder. For someone to be tight-lipped, he sure is sharing a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's his thing. So the crime scene was a circus show. You have everyone and their brother there. People going in and out. It's just a mess and no one has control because too many people want to be in control. Later, you can add the ATF agents to the mix. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearm, in case you aren't familiar with the acronym. They bring a picture of a guy named James Hall that goes by Yankee. Well, you have all these different agencies on the scene and ATF has a lead. How is that even possible? Apparently, Bob Trout had called in a tip earlier that day saying, a quote, salt and pepper team would try to kill Alice. By salt and pepper, he meant a black man and a white man. He said he got this information from an LRPD, TJ Farley. He called in the tip because he didn't want to be fingered if some if something did happen to her. No one took him seriously until, well, it was too late. One of the people he mentions is Yankee. We know Lee had a boyfriend before her husband was even stiff. Well, it turns out that wasn't the only man she was seeing. She was also seeing Yankee. He was a drug dealer by trade. This guy is a career criminal and has been in and out of jail for years. She meets Yankee at a Taco Bell of all places. One night she tells him how they can make some fast cash with this cash. They can go into the cocaine business together. She tells him that her lawyer wants his wife dead. She's threatening to leave him and take his children and ruin him financially. His only way out is to kill her. She says he's willing to pay $25,000. Yankee decides this sounds like a great way to make some money. He hasn't been a hitman in the past, but why not add it to the resume of crime? He first put the bomb on Alice's car that did not fully detonate. He needs a new plan now. Lee tells him that the kids are away at summer camp. And she got this info from Phoebe in just casual conversation. Yankee also enlisted the help of his friend, Larry McClendon. The second time, the two became friends while serving time together. He tells McClendon that his cut will be 6,000. Of course, he doesn't tell him how much he's promised. Lee helps them with a plan and they decide they need to get flowers and pretend to be delivery drivers, delivering them to Alice and shoot her when she answers the door. They make a fake sign to put in the truck window take the license plate off the truck and stop to get a flower arrangement as well as a clipboard and pen to look, you know, official. McClendon will be the one to deliver, to deliver them and shoot her. Yankee will drive his own car and will check everything is done after he hears gunshots. McClendon shows up at the house and rings the bell. Alice does come to the door and when she's there, she must have realized something was off and began running. There were two bullet holes in the home where she ran from the bedroom and she was missed by the gun. She took refuge in the closet, but this didn't help. She was shot and killed. The flowers were left there by her, beside her in the closet. The two men leave as soon as she shot. A neighbor would later recount hearing the noise, but it was July 2nd. She thought it was just kids getting into the fireworks early. The men 
didn't mean to leave the flowers, but they were trying to get out as quickly as they could. The flowers would come back to bat the salt and pepper duo in the butt. The police found where the flowers came from and they showed them pictures. They identified Yankee as the one who bought them. He was arrested and he sang like a canary. He told them about McClendon and that Lee was the one that set this all in motion. Lee was arrested but asked the police not to take her jewelry until she made it past the media. I mean, I guess you have to look classy on your way to jail. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe they let her do it, though. Well, I don't think they normally take this stuff to you're actually <laughs> in the jail. So once Bill was back in the office, Phoebe pulled him aside and asked if he was having an affair with Lee because she alluded to the fact to it a lot. And why else would she be involved in killing his wife? Bill said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> Sorry, wrong Bill from Arkansas. <laughs> he told her he, of course, hadn't had an affair with her. And he didn't know why she would be involved either. Tommy takes to the media and insults the LRPD, saying they are screwing up the case and said he was following Lee when, when and I quote, the dumb butts arrested her. <laughs> He doesn't stop there. He also enjoys putting the prosecuting attorney Bentley down as well in the media. He also refused to give his files over to Bentley on the case, and they had to be subpoenaed. Both were in the media daily, bad-mouthing the other until a circuit court, a circuit court judge put a gag order on them. August 25th, Tommy did announce to the media there was one more suspect in the slaying of Alice. Bill knew it was coming, and he prepared his kids. He knew he was going to be arrested in the murder of his wife. August 30th, Bobby Woodard showed up to Bill's office and told him he needed to come in so they could talk to him. Bill asked if he could drive himself, and he told him he could. Bill called his attorney to meet him at the station. When Bill arrived at the station, lo and behold, the media was already there. Like maybe they had been tipped off or something. Bill, being a criminal defense attorney, asked if he was going to be read his rights in question. Bill informed him he was. He said, okay, he would wait on his attorney. Then, and when he gets here, I'll answer any questions you have. A phone rang while they were waiting, and the officer began filling out the paperwork after he hung up. Bill asked if he was being arrested, and Bill said yes. When Hope, Bill's attorney, arrived, he was given a list of questions they wanted answered. He said they would answer all of them, but they wanted all agencies present for FBI, a AFT, NLPD, LRPD, and the prosecutor. Rather than get these agencies there, Tommy took to the media as usual and said Bill refused to answer questions while Hope told the media why he wouldn't answer the questions. Bill was bonded out and there was to be a trial on whether or not the sheriff had probable cause to arrest him. However, this would not come until November. This was due to the fact that all six circuit court judges recused themselves and they had to find another judge. Of course, during this time, Bill's law practice has all but dried up. He was having trouble even paying his secretary. Judge David Hill, who was hearing the case, decided to bend the case over for the trial 
in the circuit court, which meant this put the decision back on Bentley. And Bentley's the prosecuting attorney that was in the media war with Tommy, right? Yes. And he tells the press he will review everything and make a decision and drops the bomb that during this hearing, he feels enough evidence was presented to charge Mary Lee with the murder of her husband. He holds a press conference and he announces that he has decided not to charge Bill with conspiring to have Alice killed. Of course, to no one's surprise, Tommy isn't happy with the decision and he lets everyone know. In fact, the same day, he takes a letter to the circuit uh, judge, John Langston, asking for a grand jury investigation with a special prosecutor. Judge Langston invites the press there would be a grand jury investigation. Wait, aren't those supposed to be secret? I guess if you live that much in the media, you have to announce your every move. I don't know. They said we're bad with our phones and social media. Sounds like nothing here went unheard. Yes. So Bill went through the grand jury. Another gag order was in place, which, of course, Robinson called another press conference and said he knew he was breaking the gag order, but he had stuff he wanted to say. And he was fine, but that was all. The grand jury did not indict Bill of murder of Alice. Mary Lee Orsini was found guilty of murdering her husband, and she ended up dying in prison at the age of 55. Bill never had the same success as he once had. There was always a dark cloud over his head because even though he was never convicted, many people still believed he had something to do with his wife's murder. So what do you think? We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter, and if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us, so please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.